Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Interact are a charity that take professional actors into hospitals and stroke clubs to deliver a live interactive reading service to stroke survivors. And we now also deliver the service virtually, directly into people's homes. Please visit our website, www.interactstrokesupport.org, for more details. Hi, I'm Bill Patterson, and I'm lucky enough to be an ambassador for Interact Stroke Support, which visits uh, stroke patients both in in hospitals and in homes, uh, their own homes, hopefully, uh, and brings actors to tell stories, the wonderful world of storytelling brought to life in front of them live. I've watched it happening myself. I actually took part in one of them, and I was amazed at how transformative it was. People's spirits rose as these stories were told. Concentration was fantastic. And, uh, and interaction, which is, of course, the title of the, of the, of the work, uh, was really active. So I, I, I would thoroughly recommend it, and I'm very proud to be an ambassador of it, and, and to give it your support if you can. Interact, stroke support. Thank you. This week we have a returning guest. Andrew Davis is a critically acclaimed photographer who suffered a stroke in 2013. Andrew was one of our very first podcast guests. Andrew, you're looking fantastic. (laughs) You are looking absolutely fantastic. You must have lost, I don't know, how much weight have you lost? 11 stone. Oh my God. I thought my, I thought me losing two stone was amazing. 11 stone. 11 stone. What have you done? I've just been in the gym now. Literally, I I, I was running late because everybody wants to talk to me. You know, 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 I'm uh, infamous, you know, and... Yeah, no, I was running late and I, I was up to get home have a shower before I do my hair ready for my meeting with the one and only Nira Jagmarindo. But, <laughs> you know, I run out of time. And I, as you know, we've had a nightmare trying to get this working. But we're here. here we and, are. We are. Oh, Andrew, uh, you must tell me about how you've lost 11 stones because that is quite amazing. What what have you done? You've you've obviously changed your, your diet and done uh, incorporated I, I, a lot of gym work. Lockdown had a lot to do with it because, of course, I use lockdown for self-improvement, you know. I learned how to bake. I learned how to decorate cakes. I um, started walking more, you know. So, you know, I just, yeah, changed my diet, you know, changed the way I was eating. Don't drink milk, don't drink only black coffee. And I have 12 hours off a week. And that's on a Saturday from 12 afternoon to 12 midnight. And I can eat what I want. And trust me, it gets armoured. It really does, you yeah. know. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm so pleased to see you anyway, but just to see you looking so healthy, you look about, you know, 15, 20 years younger than the Andrew that I interviewed. And you're my you're my first ever recurring guest. Oh, do you know, I'm so proud. I am. I'm so honoured. You know, I really am. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fantastic to see you. We must have spoken just at the beginning of lockdown. I think you and I spoke fairly soon 
after that. Um, yeah. So it tell me, I mean, aside from you completely changing your your going through a massive transformation physically, tell me about your lockdown experience then. Well, uh, initially, I think like everybody else, I, I took it like Christmas time, you know, eat what you want, do what you want. And then I thought, oh, do you know what? Millet is going to be somewhere that I'm going to have to start shopping to buy a double-sized tent for clothes to fit me. So I just started, I, the gyms were closed, obviously. So I thought I'd just start walking. And that's what I started doing. I started walking a little bit and then a bit more, then a bit more, then a bit more. You know, it was me, me and Audible, me and Audible walking the streets, listening to podcasts and books and music and, and everything. And yeah, you know, just out, getting out there. And I, I just grew to enjoy it, you know, I just grew to enjoy it. Andrew, uh, just for for the benefit of those people uh, who are listening to the podcast who don't know who you are and they don't know the fact that you and I have known each other for quite a long time and they may not have listened, you know, outrageously. They may, they, they, we were just kids. We were just kids. They may not have listened to the first podcast that I, that I did with you. Um, would you be kind enough to tell people uh, who you are and uh, what it is that you do? Right. Um, my name is Andrew Davis. I'm 53. I'm actually 54 on the weekend. Don't forget my card, no, Jay. Um, and uh, in, I used to be a professional photographer, magazines, newspapers, um, PR and everything. I worked with um, I worked with lots of lovely people, lots of not so nice people. And in 2013, I had a massive stroke and I was told I'd never stand and I'd never walk again. And that that puts that puts it in in a in a nutshell there of of of, of your experience, um, Andrew. I wanted to ask you about this whole business of um, the expectations um, that the medical uh, world have of people that have had a stroke. You know, you were told you're never going to walk again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah. I've heard so many people say to me. Um, uh, doctors said to me, whatever my rehabilitation is after six months, then that's going to be it for the rest mm. of my life. And I wanted your views on that. And, and why do you think so many of the medical practitioners seem to resort to that type of information that they give to uh, stroke survivors? Personally, I think it's out of fear, you know, uh, repercussions to themselves um for my for my for my for myself it was um i was 45 and i i thought when they showed me stroke i first of all i thought but only old people have that and i'm only 45 uh but of course i was educated quite quickly that that isn't the case and for me it wasn't a case of i'm never going to walk again it was like you know i just have to i mean i you know i'm 45 i've got my whole life ahead of me and the truth was, there were so many people on the stroke ward with me when I eventually got to the stroke ward that they just give up. They, literally, they had literally just given up, whether it was because they were too old or whether they just didn't have the, the grit and determination. I, I don't know, but it did me a favour because I, I was stealing all their physiotherapy because if they weren't going to do it, the physiotherapies, physiotherapists were, were free. So I said, well, if that, somebody doesn't want it, I'm happy to do it. So that's what I did. Um, and then I, I, I managed to escape hospital. They said I'd been for months. I was in for less than two weeks and I was out. Uh, the other thing I did was 
when the OTs came to my home to make alterations to my house so it would be easier for me to live, I refused it. I refused any kind of um, uh, any kind of changes for the simple reason I thought this is my life now. You know what I mean? You know, if I if I decide to go on holiday or I decide to go out for the day, all those things are not going to be there for me. So I either adapt and overcome you know, and be the person that I used to, try and be the person I used to be, no matter, I didn't know how how far I would get, obviously. And that's what I did, you know, I was just determined to get better. And I, I do think that when I went from a wheelchair to a Zimmer frame, they thought that was going to be my limit. And then I wanted to go from a Zimmer frame to walking sticks, and they weren't happy with that. You know, professionals weren't happy with that because they were afraid I'd fall and I'd injure myself. And my, my answer was, um, you can't make omelettes without breaking eggs, and you can't learn to walk, walk without breaking bones. And I did break a few bones, and I still carry a few injuries now, shoulder pain and from falling. But you know what? I'm walking. You know, I'm walking, and I'm living my I'm living my best life. People see me, and they they will never ever think that I've had a stroke. You know, never think I've had a stroke, which is great for me. And if I can help and inspire other people to think the same, then that's great. That's that's what I do. So you you made an interesting comment then. I just want to sort of touch upon it where you said, well, if other people weren't going to have uh, occupational uh, therapy or or speech therapy um, in the hospital, then then I would, you know, very gladly take it. So the implication is that actually if if we were to give people far more occupational and speech therapy in the hospital setting, that would actually um, be of greater benefit in in the longer run uh because it would mean that people people's rehabilitation is quicker their ability to get back to some sort of normalcy would would be quicker and we'd be saving the nhs lots of money in the long run is is that a fair way of looking at it or well yeah you know the first thing they should give them is hope you know don't tell them they're never going to walk again don't tell them that you know you're never going to be able to speak again you know you've got to give people hope you know without hope you've got nothing you know that's why people didn't want to do probably do their ot they didn't want to do their physio they didn't want to do this because they thought it was pointless you know so if you don't give somebody hope where do you where do you go you know it's it's like well you know you know why bang my head against a brick wall every single day of the year knowing i'm not going to break that wall but if you say that if you you know they're hard enough and long enough it'll start to crack and then it'll start to break and then you lock it down so it's all about self-determination to knock your own walls down you know it's easy to build a protective wall around you and family will want to protect you as well so they will they will also try to protect you so you have to sometimes you have to try to push back that's what i think personally you know i'm not saying what's happened for me will happen for everybody i am not saying that but i would rather go down trying than than sit there in five or ten years time thinking do you know what i really wish i'd done more in that first six months or i'd done more after that six months and just keep plugging away you know if you make the way i look at it is if you make don't measure where you are you know from don't don't make don't stand somewhere and thinking how far have i come from a distance from you that you're looking forward you need to look backwards to see how far you've come from where you were when i when i had my stroke lying in the bed just lying in the bed after i after after when i when i got home it was all about pushing 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 everything was you know 
And then I would look back to see how far I've come from going on a settee, being propped up by pillows because I couldn't keep myself upright, to being able to catch a ball. You know, to some people, that's nothing. Like success is different things to different people. To some people, it might be making a million pound. For me, it was getting out of bed in the morning. That was my success. So, you know what I mean? Once I'd, once I'd conquered that bit, then I moved on to the next. Well, it's all about little goals. There's a, a, a saying that, um, uh, that, that, that I, I think of now and again is uh, small daily victories lead to the biggest changes. And that's the only thing I say. Just small daily victories. Don't, don't try to think you're going to run a marathon. You know, first of all, think about, you know, getting off your backside and being able to stand. Once you can do that, that'll be a challenge. But once you've done that, then then just expand expand your goal to something else, to something else. Then look back to see where you were to where you are now, rather than from where you were when before you had a stroke. That's how I think of it. You know, you know, would I say I'm back to where I was um, post-stroke, pre-stroke? No. But am I happy? Yes, I am. You know, because I give myself limitations and I if I if I get a success, even though it's a small success, it's success success all the same, you know. But I'm aging forward closer to where I was. You know, am I normal? What's normal? You know, no, no normal is what you are. You know, it's not it's not governed by any kind of universal rule. It is what it is. You know, if you feel normal, then you're normal, you know, and, and that's how I see it. Well, what interests me about what you're saying is your independent spirits. And what, what I mean by that is, I'm guessing that if someone has had a stroke yes. and an, an occupational therapist comes along and says, uh, right, we need to, you know, slightly reconfigure your home so that uh, it is, uh, you know, far more conducive to your current circumstances most people would would be thinking well they're the experts yeah uh, they know what they're doing and uh they've got you know the best intentions uh at heart so i will i will sort of agree to, to yeah. all of that you yeah. however had a very different attitude which was well actually the world around me is not uh configured to suit me uh, and therefore I will not take uh, any sort of change to my my home circumstances. Now, yeah. so my my quest, my point there is: Do you think, though, that most people would not make the decision that you made? Again, it's a personal choice. You know, I I, I was so determined. I, you know, I was. You know, look, if somebody's 60, 70, 80 and don't feel that they 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 don't feel that feel that they need those those things to assist them then of course they have to take it you know this is my personal preference for myself you know i i can't sit here and say nobody should have these things because as you know nerji you know stroke you know if 10 people had a stroke you'd have 10 people with completely different uh um issues you know you know, so I can't sit here and say this is the way to get better because it worked for me. It worked for me, and that's all I can say. Yeah. But like, can I can I try and help people make just even if it's just make them feel a little bit more positive that you know just because just because the grey clouds are coming over doesn't mean the sun isn't going to come out again. You know, you know. At the end of the day, we we can be happy. We we can be happy whilst we're not the way we used to be. You know. Happiness is a state of mind, you know, it's not, 
It's not about our bodies or anything else. It's, it's what we think, you know what I mean? It's what, what's in our heads. That's what makes us happy. And to be honest, in, in life, all, all we want to be is happy. So, uh, Andrew, what, what do you think the landscape of, of stroke is uh, in 2022? And what I mean by that is, what are the, the organisations that are focused on stroke? What are we missing? What are we not doing that we should be doing, in your opinion? Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing things out there. Um, I'm a member of a, a men's stroke group, which I just just stumbled upon. Um, you know, uh, and it's a good laugh, you know, because the the the, the guys who are in it, they are, you know, varying varying degrees of disability, you know, um, but they feel like you can leave their head down because they're all in the same boat. They're all in the same boat, you know. I mean, nobody's looking at their wheelchair and talking to the carer. You know, would they like a drink or whatever? They literally just, it's a little bit like being in the army. There's a lot of ribbon, there's a lot of banter, and there's a lot of putting down, literally, you know, and, and, and they feel at home, you know, and, you know, they have golf days, you know, bowling days. Is it easy for them? No. But do they have a laugh? Yeah. If they drop the ball, do you think they get pity? Oh, no, they get slaughtered. You know what I mean? It's, you know, those kind of things, those groups are amazing and everything. Something I think has a lot, you know, and I'm not, this isn't about the Stroke Association or any other stroke group or whatever, because but I think more needs to be done for carers, personally, you know. I think carers, um, carers do it out of love and they do it out of um, compassion, but they, you know, they don't get paid, they, you know, and, well, I remember going to Swindon with, with, with you uh, to, to a conference and I, I was just doing the meeting and greeting and sitting down talking to new people who, uh, new delegates who, or uh, candidates or whatever you want to call them would come to the, the conference. And I remember talking to this woman, she would have had a stroke 20, 30 years before. And I said to her husband, I said, you know, uh, how are you doing? Because he was a carer. And he said, sorry. And I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, do you know what he said? In the 20, 30 years since my wife had a stroke, nobody has ever asked me that. That was quite harrowing for me, I thought. You know what I mean? You know, uh, you know there's a guy who literally spends his whole days and his lives, you know, you know, making sure his wife's needs are, are met, or uh, she's happy and they, they're happy as a couple and everything. And it's a, it's a thankless job in many ways. Of course, his wife is very, um, uh, is very, is very grateful for, for what carers do for, for their loved ones. But I just don't think they're, uh, they, they're looked upon in the same way. You know, that's my, my own opinion, you know. I was I was talking to a, a stroke survivor called Nick Clark, who's who set up a very interesting charity called Stroke Information, yeah. and and I asked him, oh, you know, what why did you set this up? One of the points that he made, and I, I sort of pondered on it afterwards, is that he felt that certain organisations, and uh, I think he used the phrase the, the National Stroke uh, Charity, um, he said that they've become too big. Yeah. Yeah, two corporates. Uh, it was was his was his feeling, and and you know I'm you know I, I think the Stroke Association do fantastic work, and you and I have both worked with the Stroke Association. But I just wondered, I wondered on that particular point uh, of a organisation becoming so big, it sort of then loses its connection to ordinary stroke survivors. I just wonder whether what your view is on on that. Well, as you know, me and you were part of um, this steering group um, for 
the UKSE. And it was, it was great. You know what I mean? I, you know, it was a volunteering thing and I absolutely loved doing it. You know, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was great, you know, uh, but sometimes, you know, you, 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 you try to, you, you see the corporate edge coming in. You see the, the corporate edge coming in. And I'm not saying it loses its focus or whatever, but, you know, and there are some people working for, there's some people working for these stroke organizations, which are truly amazing. You know what I mean? You know, I could run off a load of names now who I think are absolutely amazing, you know, and, and they're far, they're far more majority than a minority, but there are a few who I just feel like are ticking boxes, you know, they, they, they tick boxes and they turn up and they smile and they leave, you know, and I, I don't know I, I, whether, whether I'm just being too hard, I don't know, but, you know, um, personally, I think that more can be done and more steering groups need to be done and more people with stroke should have an input into, into these things. You know, I was very fortunate to be the Welsh representative for it, but why couldn't we have 10 Welsh representatives? You know, why can't we have 10 English representatives, you know? Because everybody's different, you know, I, I can only speak from, from my own experiences or my own, my own disability, but other people have different disabilities. So, you know, where whether it was aphasia or whether it was dyspraxia or whether it was mobility or, you know, have, have many um, outlooks on something rather than just one person, you know? Like I know for you, you know, you, you've been a, you know, your organization, you know, I know what your organization does for, for, for people with stroke. And, that does give them hope, you know. Somebody goes along and spends time with them, you know, and and you know that's um, that's heartwarming, you know what I mean? You know, it's not it's not the doom and gloom of oh, you know, I'm gonna have to get out of bed now, or they're gonna have to come and change my adult diaper because I can't get out of bed, or you know, somebody comes and treats them like a not not treats them like a human being. That's wrong because the nurses are amazing, but you know they sit there and somebody's speaking to them or reading to them and. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing that uh, Interactive Stroke does, you know, and, you know, and you know that anything I can do to help, I, I, I will, you know. Let me let me ask you something. Um, and please, please be honest, you know, in, in, in your answer on this. Um, there are people out there. I, I call yeah. them very well-intentioned people. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they mean well, but they seem to have a view that the only thing that stroke survivors are interested in uh, are things yeah. completely related to stroke. No. That they don't have any other life beyond stroke, that yeah. their, their, their total definition of who they are is, is within stroke. Look, you know, the amount of conferences I've been to, and, you know, they have these discussions on what the new stroke techniques are, and what they, you know, what 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 they're expecting recovery time to be, and everything else, and that's great. It is, it's, it's amazing, you know. And I, and I'm happy for the people who have strokes in the future. But the problem is, the people who are at the conference, they've already had strokes. So you know, it's like shutting the door after the horse has bolted. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, you know, yeah, we've got a new cure for this, or we can do that, or whatever. But you know, for for the people who are there, they're looking for hope, and the hope comes. In for them to get better. I'm not saying that they won't have a stroke in the future where those um, things would be there. I think it should be more about helping them, you know, like 
you've got PIP and you've got, you know, ESA or you've got benefits. Or, and I know things have been done on these things and I'm not saying it hasn't been looked at and has been dealt with, but the stress people are under, you know, carers, you know, worrying about money, you know, maybe having a laugh, you know what I mean? You know, like, you know, um, have a comedian in, you know, have a comedian in rather than somebody like me talking about when I had a stroke, I had to wear an adult diaper or whatever, you know, and, you know, like, I don't know if you remember when when I did my talk and having to wear an adult diaper in crew, but, you know, I made a joke of it because that's how I get through life, you know what I mean? You know, if you don't laugh, you know, if you don't laugh at these things, they're just going to bog you down, you know, and, you know, but, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you just want to have a different outcome, you know, I'm great that they, they're fixing things for a stroke in the future, but is there any chance we can talk about stroke now and what we can do now to, to make my life a little bit easier or my carer's life a little bit easier? And maybe the weekend the weekend there, it'd be educational, but it'd also be about fun. And I know we have had fun, you know. You know, Nurja, your middle name is fun. <laughs> well, at least you laughed at some of some of the jokes that I used to crack uh, when I was when I was uh, doing the odd chair of uh, those uh, stroke assembly days. Were funny. It wasn't funny. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, uh, tell us what you're doing now um, as we move out of COVID. What 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 what's what's the focus? Right. Uh, well, I right. For, for four or five years, I, I was uh, developing an app for, um, for social inclusion, not social exclusion, to, to rid the world of hopefully social exclusion. And it was, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like taking a big chunk out of the world because the thing is, there are 40%, you know, there are so many disabled people of different variations throughout the world. So you couldn't just do one thing, it had to be everything you know so it was a it was a little bit like it was a massive task a massive undertaking um but then of course we started dealing with what they call low-hanging fruit um to get the data that we needed to build the app then of course covid came along after four or five years of um of research so that went flat due to no students no uh, no research being able to be done no folks was able to done um and uh re yesterday i had an interview for anything for for a job because you know um with covid and everything else and i i had an interview for um a disability inclusion manager at the dvsa which is the the driver vehicle licensing um, authority so i'm very passionate about disability and you know it, it's changed my life um not gonna lie i'm i am happier now i i had a, an amazing life before my stroke but i do feel like i'm happier now than i was before my stroke because I've realised what life is all about, you know, and so that's what I do now. Uh, the app is still there on the back burner and I still do a bit of photography. I still do inspirational speaking at schools and colleges and prisons and universities, uh, promoting entrepreneurship, but talking about my disability and how I adapted to overcome, to move forward. Um, yeah, I just, I just want to be, I'm not, I, people say I'm an inspiration. I find it quite embarrassing because I, I don't think I am. I'm just somebody wanting to be normal or somebody trying to be, get back to some kind of normality and happiness, you know, and, and that's just me, you know, and uh, I, I've had a hard time and I treat people as I want to be treated myself and hope that I can make somebody smile on a daily basis. Well, I, I find you an inspiration. Uh, I, I found you an inspiration the moment I met you. 
Um, oh. I, I just think you're you're a completely amazing person, Andrew. But you already know that, and I'll I'll pay you. I'll pay you later. Uh, I'm beating you. <laughs> but so so the app, I I do remember you were very passionate. Yeah. About the app a, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Will that continue, or is that less of a focus now? Well, no, no. I still wanted still wanted to continue. Obviously, it's just on the back burner with with a, with a, with with the state of the world with COVID and now Ukraine, and you know, um, it's a really important thing. You know, it's it's so important. Social exclusion. You know, uh, again, what is normal? You know, um, you know, what is success? You know, I think it is a really, really, and and the shame is, is that there are there are not more philanthropists out there who would take it because I wasn't doing it for money. I wasn't doing it to be a millionaire. I was literally doing it because I just thought it was the right thing to do. You know, it was gonna be an app that was free for people to use. Yes, businesses would have to pay for it and it would have to generate some kind of, uh, um, we'd have to generate some kind of income from 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 a keeping it updated, like data, you know, you know, you have to protect these data, that costs money, you know, and so it has to generate some kind of money. Um, the Welsh Government did a uh, focus on it, um, on between them, and I think it was University College London, and they estimated it would make a hundred million pounds a year, which is right. enormous, isn't it? You know, uh, yeah. And my ethos was that if Beryl and John, one of them had a stroke, or both of them had a stroke, and not gone on holiday, or having problems getting um, adaptions in their homes, or their beds were broken, or you know, just general things, then the app would offer a foundation to to help pay for those things. You know, so it wasn't all about me having a buying a Caribbean island next to uh, Richard Branson. It was literally about paying it forward. It was a lot of hard work, but paying it forward. And let's say somebody had the app on their phone yeah. or on their computer. What what is it that the app would actually do? What 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 would uh, where would they navigate to, etc. It would be built on. It would be built on a profile of their own, you know. So just because somebody's had a stroke or they have lupus or they have diabetes, they could have all three. You know what I mean? So you know those three things would be would bring their own their own issues. You know, like for instance, the idea was was that let's just say, say you're a diabetic or you have to you have to eat at a certain time of the day and you travel in the world, you know, and you've just landed in Hong Kong. You've never been to Hong Kong before, but it's coming up to um, a certain hour that you need to eat. Well, the app would then inform you via your phone through push notifications or your Apple Watch or your smart watch or whatever. No need telling you that it's time to eat, but it would also tell you somewhere you could eat conducive to your condition within a five mile radius of you. So, you know, like if you have lupus, you have to make sure there's no strip lighting or there's no drafts or whatever, you know. So there's a lot of information that would be built in around the app just on a personal level. So it was about helping people live their lives without... Best way for me to describe it is, if I have lupus and I have to ring a, re a local restaurant and say, I'd like to book a table for six at seven o'clock tonight. And they say, yes, yes, you know, how many? Uh, oh yeah, four of us, there'll be four of us. And usually that's where the conversation will end. But then if you're disabled or you've got lupus or something and you say, oh, I'm in a wheelchair, is access okay? You know, can I get from the, 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 can I get from the pavement into the hotel 
and you know is it easy access or when I come inside I've also got lupus do you have strip lighting or is there strip lighting in the toilets that conversation seems to go on and on and on and then the person on the other end is saying hang on now I'm just taking your book in for a table I'm not here to you know give you all the disability information go on our website but if it's on an app and it'll tell the person what they need to know or then that that becomes complete com com completely inclusive and exclusive to them so it's about personal app it is an app it was a platform that it, it was going to be global you know global i'd like still like to think it would be global and it would literally help um people with disabilities eating disorders eating problem uh, you know food intolerance whatever their disability is it would help them live a normal life without having to feel like they have to go through such a expanse of information just to get to eat some food in the restaurant that so who was who was helping you from a from a technological point of view garner all the information that you need for example in hong kong when somebody lands in hong kong and the example you gave yeah, well, they might need to eat it's a, it's a little bit like TripAdvisor in many ways, you know, but not, it's, it's, it's like a, a multitude of, uh, it's a multifaceted app, you know what I mean? And the problem was, is because you have so many different working parts, you know, you're, you're talking about um, where things might conflict with each other and everything else. So we had Fujitsu on board for the software and the, the, the building of the app. Um, we had students from University College London, Swans University, PhD students from Swans University. Um, we were, we were dealing with uh, like uh, autis autism, um, autism charities, um, disability charities, to help find the focus groups, you know. Um, so people would tell us what their problems were, you know. So we would build it on what they needed, not what we thought they wanted, you know. Because the thing is, I haven't got lupus, so I don't know. So we contacted lupus society, and they were very helpful and told us what they needed to know. And then we give a brief to a group of university students who were doing a degree in business and they would go and then they would do the research they would come back and it would take them a year you know it would take them a year for for for, for one for one thing you know it was it was in depth you know it was a lot of data a lot of data gathering so as you can imagine it's not like a kind of thing where we can be the whole thing to everyone in one go it's going to take years and it's going to take a long time to build and build and build and we have to go with the low hanging fruit you know, we couldn't just jump in on something really complex like autism, uh, even though the work had started on autism, because we knew it was going to take, it wouldn't take a year, it could take five, six, seven years, because it was so intricate, you know, and you can't get it wrong, you know, you can't get it wrong. We, one of the things that we were doing with autism was trying to find a way of coming up with a visual, audible um, mapping system that they could use a smartphone to help guide youngsters or adults with autism to get from A to B because they, they struggle to read signage. Even the man on the toilet door or the woman on the toilet door, somebody with autism might not be able to understand what that sign means, you know? So it was about doing things in a way which made it conducive. So it would be a little bit like AR where, you know, they'd have their phone and it would literally light up the doorway in pink or blue. So they knew it was male or female. You know, uh, of course, we didn't cover uh, non-binary or transgender, you know, but, you know, you know, these things have to be, the problem is with disability, it's always changing, you know what I mean? Like, 
we can have programs these days that will read the page of a website for you or you, you know it'll do that for you you know but things are always changing you know what's 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 brand new today is old tomorrow you know and then there's something else new coming up so you have to adapt and change all the time so it's that's why it has to generate money and and it's so it's such a big monster in, in many ways i think it frightens people away it frightens mm. people away because yeah but you know but i'm quite dogged so i would keep chip 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 chipping away you know and i ho hopefully one day it'll it'll come to fruition hopefully well andrew i, I just wish you all the success on that you know you're such a determined person and as i've said to you before you, you know the moment i met you i felt you were a real inspiration to me oh thank you um and uh uh you know you 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 everything that you do is is really fantastic yeah. uh, i can't thank you enough i appreciate for... fall asleep. i really do i really appreciate <laughs> you usually fall asleep you, know, Jay. you usually fall <laughs> and and i really appreciate the fact that you are my first ever re reoccurring guest is andrew davis which just goes to show you can't trust the welsh <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't hey listen thank you for having me Jay. i really appreciate it that was andrew davis interact have been doing these podcasts every two weeks during the lockdown period but as we've now moved out of lockdown and most of our hospital work is now back up and running the podcasts will move to once a month due to the time constraints of running the charity. So there will be a temporary break before the next podcast, which we are hoping will be on the first Monday of November. And we very much look forward to your company then. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org and if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.